For those who give us the encouragement and the feedback on the Beatitude series, thank you for that. It's been a great thing to do. It was, it was a pleasure and it was a challenge. It's always a challenge to kind of grapple with those words, those wonderful, incredible words that Jesus kind of spoke in, in, the, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount. And I said to someone near the start of the series, because that was the first time I've actually had the opportunity. Despite all the years I've preached, that's the first time I've actually preached with a focus on the Beatitudes which is crazy to think about, but it was a great pleasure to do that. And the reason, just to remind you why we did that, is at the start of that series, the reason we wanted to do that is we want to kind of continue to work on our heart as a church. We want to be kingdom-orientated people. Uh, We want to be salt and light. We want to be people of humility. Uh, We want to be people of lament and hope, as we shared in the Beatitudes. We want to be people who are meek, people who crave God, people who are merciful and so we want to kind of build that and continue to build that. And as we leave the Beatitude series and we launch into a new series this morning, the reason for doing so still remains the same. We want to work on our heart as Metro Christian Centre in Bury and in Whitefield. And to be honest with you, when we go into the series that follow this and the series that follows that and the series that follows that and whatever comes after that, it's still the same purpose. We just want to work on our heart as God's people, because that work, I don't know about you, that network never ceases. It never comes to an end. And we're never going to rush through that. We're never just going to think that's over, because heart surgery is not something that you rush through. Uh, And God wants to do heart surgery on us. He wants to work on our hearts. And so, over the coming weeks, we're going to spend some time on a series called Ethos. And on the back of this, just to kind of pre-warn you, I say pre-warn you, is that the right word? Warn? To pre-encourage you. Uh, on the back of this series, we're also going to launch into a series, after we've spent seven weeks in this, we're going to launch in, into a series on the Apostles' Creed, uh, which I'm really, really looking forward to. Don't be worried. You're going to love it, and you're going to be excited about it. Don't worry. It's going to be great. But over the next few weeks, we're going to spend some time looking at our ethos, our values, the things that are important to us as we seek to express the centrality of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at Scripture we're going to look at the fact that we are seekers of God. We're going to look at the fact that we are spirit people, spirit-filled people, and that is important to us. We're going to look at the importance of service. But we're also going to look at the importance of Sabbath, that we do not want to be a people that is burnt out and have a burnout culture. We're going to look at the importance of church being a sanctuary. Uh, and we're going to also look at the importance of stories, that our stories are important, that every single one of us has a story. And that story has been wrapped up in the story of God. And so this morning, I have the pleasure and I have the joy of starting us off on this very small and easy topic of Scripture. And I'll be honest with you, I'll be honest with you, I'm very, very, very nervous. It might not show, I mean, I'm always nervous when I preach, but I am extraordinarily nervous this morning, because this is no small topic and we won't cover cover it all this morning. But I know in what I'm going to say, and it's always a risk whenever I preach, And I need you to hear this, but I know if you don't hear me properly this morning, you will misunderstand me. So please don't misunderstand me, and please listen carefully. And I'm happy to answer any questions afterwards, but please listen carefully in everything that we say. I'll apologize to you if you are keen on this kind of topic. I'll just give you a heads up. We're not going to have a conversation this morning about the history of the Bible and how it came together. Uh, We're not going to have a conversation about the Bible's relationship with history and world history. We're not going to have a conversation about its translations 
or different kinds of translations, or even the Bible's multiple genres that are included in what we call a Bible, or its wonderful, beautiful, creative use of language. We're not going to have a conversation about the complicated working relationship between divine inspiration and the Bible's human authors. And we're not going to have a conversation about methods of interpretation. Sorry to disappoint you. I'm sorry to disappoint you. We're not going to get into that. They're all important topics. And we can spend weeks talking about it. And there's some really great books out there talking. But I'm not going to go there this morning. I'm stupidly and ineptly probably uh, going to go to a more dangerous place. And I'm going to talk about why, as Jesus people, we spend time being committed to picking up a particular book. Because that's a peculiar thing to do, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever thought about it. Uh, but outside of religious circles, to spend time picking up a book is a very odd thing to do. Or to pick up the same book and to read it every day and to be devoted to it and to study it and to read it and to try and understand it and to grapple with it. I mean, the only other thing I can think that does anything remotely like that are book clubs. Uh, but they don't last nowhere near as long as this has been lasting or as long as we do it. It's a very peculiar thing to do. That We are people and I won't explain this, but we are people of a book. I hope we understand that this morning. We are people of a book. And it's a peculiar thing to do, but I make no apologies when I say this. But one of our values as Metro Christian Center is that we will actively engage with the Scriptures. Always. We will wrestle with them, and we will let them wrestle with us We're never going to look anywhere else. We're never going to pick up another book. We might use analogies and illustrations, as I often do. But this is what we are about. We are people of a book. And the big question is, why? Why are we people of a book? Well, I could say something very simple, like I say simple, but something along the lines of what John Calvin said in in the 1500s. He wrote a very slim volume, an 1800-page long volume, uh, called the Institutes of the Christian Religion in the 1500s. And in that, in that book, he kind of described scriptures as being like a set of glasses. That we put them on, and through the scriptures, when we look through the scriptures, we see God. It's the scriptures that bring all our blurry, fuzzy, confused ideas about God into focus. But what does that mean? What does that mean exactly? And what happens if you put those glasses on upside down? And what happens if if the person wearing those glasses decides to interpret what they're seeing through those glasses differently than what the glasses are trying to show us? And furthermore, if the Scriptures bring something into focus, if the Scriptures bring our ideas into focus, then what is that focus? Where is that focus point? And so we're going to explore this this morning. And we're going to practice what we preach. And we're going to jump into the Scriptures and into the text together. And so if you have a Bible with you this morning, I hope you do. And can I encourage you to bring a Bible with you to church. And if you do not have a Bible, ask us and we will supply you with one. But if you have your Scriptures with you this morning, we're going to jump into a story in John's Gospel. And in chapter 5, and we're going to read from verse 31 in a minute, but in John's Gospel, chapter 5... And before we read from that, and I'm going to invite Steph in a moment to come and read from that for me. But before I read that, just give you a little bit of context to John chapter 5. And in John chapter 5, Jesus causes a ruckus. 
I don't know if you noticed this, but Jesus could calm storms, but Jesus always had a way of kind of kicking up a bit of a ruckus and a bit of a storm as well. And he causes a bit of a commotion. And at the start of John chapter 5, Jesus heals a man, a man who's been lame for 37 years, and he commands the man to pick up a sleeping mat and to walk. It's a wonderful miracle that takes place at, this boot, at a pool called Bethesda. But it's a problem that happens. It's a miracle that takes place on the Sabbath day, a day of rest. And as the healed man picks up a sleeping mat and he walks away carrying a sleeping mat, the religious leaders of the day spot him and they tell him off for working on the Sabbath. They look at him carrying something and saying that he is working on a day when people shouldn't work. And so the man understandably defends himself. And he explains why it is that he's carrying a sleeping mat. And he turns around, well, the only reason I'm carrying a sleeping mat is because the man who healed me told me to pick it up and carry it. He, he kind of blames the person. It's not my fault. The man who told me, who healed me, told me, pick it up and carry it. That's the reason why I'm carrying it. And so the ruckus starts. And the religious leaders aren't happy with the idea of someone going around granting unauthorized, unauthorized, that's the best word I can think of really, unauthorized consent for working on a Sabbath day. And when they find out that it's Jesus who has issued this instruction, they suddenly start harassing Jesus. That's the word that the New Living Translation uses. They start harassing Jesus, interrogating Jesus on why he broke the Sabbath rules. You read that in John 5 verse 17. It's a, it's a sort of who, the he, who, who on earth do you, do you think you are going around giving permission for people to work on a Sabbath? And so Jesus responds. And he says something that really, really infuriates the religious leaders. He replies, my father never stops working, so why should I? And it triggers them. It triggers them. And as John writes in John chapter 5 and verse 18... It triggers them so much that the Jewish leaders tried all the more to kill Jesus. In addition to, in addition to disobeying, disobeying the Sabbath rules, he had spoken of God as his father, thereby making himself equal with God. I want you to note that this morning. I want you to note that this morning. They not only harass Jesus, but they want to kill Jesus. And we won't explore why it is this morning Jesus' words trigger them and infuriate them, or why they correctly understand what Jesus said the way that they do. But following that statement, Jesus then starts to give a defense for who he is and why he does what he does and who it is that testifies or gives evidence on his behalf about who he is and why he does what he does. And we're going to jump into the middle of that defense in John's Gospel, in John chapter 5 and verse 31. And Steph is going to come and read that to us. If I were to testify on my own behalf, my testimony would not be valid. But someone else is also testifying about me. And I can assure you that everything he says about me is true. In fact, you sent messengers to listen to John the Baptist and... He preached the truth. But the best testimony about me is not from a man, though I have reminded you about John's testimony, so you might be saved. John shone brightly for a while, and you benefited and rejoiced. But I have a greater witness than John, my teachings and my miracles. They have been assigned to me by the Father, 
and they testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself has also testified about me. You have never heard his voice or seen him face to face, and you do not have his message in your hearts because you do not believe me, the one he sent to you. You search the scriptures because you believe they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me so that I can give you this eternal life. Your approval or disapproval means nothing to me because I know you don't have God's love within you. For I have come to you representing my father and you refuse to welcome me, even though you readily accept others who represent only themselves. No wonder you can't believe for you gladly honor each other, but you don't care about the honor that comes from God alone. Yet it is not I who will accuse you of this before the Father. Moses will accuse you. Yes, Moses, on whom you set your hope. But if you had believed Moses, you would have believed me because he wrote about me. And since you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe what I say? Thank you, Steph. Let's just pray just before we jump into this passage this morning. Lord God, we, we thank you for the opportunity to just be in here today, just to open up your scriptures and just to hear what you have said about the Son. And I pray that you would help us today. I pray that you would help us with your spirit, Lord God, that you would guide us, that you would speak to us. I pray that you help me in my ineptness, in my fragility, in my fallibility, Lord God, to to kind of speak what you've placed on my heart as I've opened up this scripture over this past couple of weeks. And I, I just really pray, Lord God, that you would help us. That you would help us. You, we reminded, Lord God, even later on in John's gospel, Lord God, he, you said that you've sent your spirit to help us and to lead us into truth. And so I pray as we, as we open up this text this morning, as we look at it, as we think about it, as we let it wrestle with us, I pray that your spirit would guide us and your spirit would lead us into all truth so that we could reflect you and know you and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. It's an interesting text, isn't it? You've gone quiet. It's an interesting text, isn't it? It's a lot in there. Uh, John's gospel is a fantastic, fantastic gospel. Uh, and it, right, so it's just, right, it says this. I, I'm just going to kind of zoom in on this, on, on verse 37 to verse 39. Jesus says this, the Father himself has testified about me. You've never heard his voice or seen his face to face or seen him face to face. And you do not have God's message in your heart. You do not have God's message in your heart because you do not believe me, the one he sent to you, Jesus is saying about himself. And then he says, you search the scriptures because you believe they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. You search the scriptures because you believe they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. They're big words. They are big words. And if the Jewish leaders were infuriated about what he had already said, uh, (laughs) about God being his father and making himself equal with God, they certainly would have been very, very infuriated with what he just said then. But what powerful, jolting, table-turning, puzzling, challenging words. And it, it's worth noting this. I just to say this. When Jesus speaks of the Bible, when Jesus speaks of the Scriptures here, please remember, when he says these words, the New Testament, as we have it now, didn't exist. He's, he's talking about the Old Testament, the Old Testament Scriptures. We'll, 
We'll get to the New Testament much, much later on. But he's speaking about the Old Testament Scriptures. That These Scriptures, these words of Moses, these words of the prophets, they all speak about me. And if we let the words of John 5 sink in for a moment, if we let Jesus' words work their way in our mind and turn the cogs in our brains, then all sorts of questions start to arise, don't they? Let's think that through. All sorts of questions. Again, they would have really ignited hundreds of questions within Jesus' audience's ears and in their minds. And as we read this passage, passage, it's really important. It's really important to remember that when Jesus is speaking these words, he's speaking to a people who are devoted to God and to the Scriptures. People like us. They're devoted to God and to the Scriptures. They are people who love the Bible. They read the Bible. They study the Bible. They discuss what we know as the Old Testament on a daily basis. And they seek to follow it and to apply it and be faithful to it. But Jesus turns around to them and he tells them that they don't actually have the Word of God with a capital W. They don't actually have the Word of God because they don't have God's message in their hearts. You're hearing that. You're looking uncomfortable. Great. The Jewish leaders would have looked uncomfortable too. Now don't rush away yet. Don't think off. Don't, don't go anywhere. Stay with us. But they don't have God's message in their hearts because who is God's message? Who is God's message? Jesus. As he says, they don't have the message because I'm the one he has sent. Are you hearing this? I'm just, I've not said anything. I'm just going for Jesus' words. And according to Jesus, if they only understood the Scriptures, if they only understood what Moses and the prophets were writing about, then they would recognize that through the God-breathed words of the Scriptures, God the Father has given a witness statement, so God has given evidence about the Son. That's what Jesus is on about. He's saying, you know, there's people, I've got evidence on my side. There's, there's John the Baptist, but you know what? I don't need John the Baptist, though I'm reminding you of him. I've got my signs and my miracles, but I don't even know to them. I need to mention them because there's somebody else. The Father has given his witness statement about me. And if you only understood the witness statement, you would recognize me and you would receive the message he has sent to you. That's a big challenge. Now again, think about it. Let it sink in. Now, don't stone me, but let it sink in, because I haven't said anything. I'm only just repeating Jesus' words. They have the Bible, but they don't have God's message. Now, you imagine if anybody, I mean, I'm telling you that, and I'm terrified telling you that. But imagine someone standing in a church today and saying that. How would you feel? That's a bit of a perplexing puzzle, isn't it? Now, don't get me wrong, he's not questioning what they've got. He's not questioning what they've got. They have the right texts. They have the right God-inspired, God-breathed words, but they've read them the wrong way. And Jesus' charge against them is this, that they had mistaken the Scriptures for something they are not, and something they were not intended to be. Or in his own words, you search the Scriptures because you think you'll find eternal life in here, but the Scriptures point to me. He is where eternal life is. Now again, that's a huge claim to make, but if we take Jesus seriously, and I do take Jesus very, very seriously, 
then according to Jesus, Scripture doesn't point to itself, but it points beyond itself to him. It points beyond itself to him. Scriptures do not say that he is the source of life, that they are the source of life, but they exist to point people to the source of life. That's what they're for. In other words, Jesus is what the the Bible is all about. Jesus is what the Bible is all about. You're looking confused. That might be for a number of reasons. He is the subject matter. He is the focus. He is the point of reference. He is what the Old Testament is all about. And it's what it's always been all about. And so if we want to understand the Old Testament, if we want to understand the Scriptures, then Jesus is the interpretive key. Jesus reveals its meaning, its shape, its texture. It all hinges on Jesus Christ. All these God-breathed words gravitate towards him and find their fulfillment and their substance in the word made flesh. Let me say that again. All the God-breathed words of Scripture gravitate towards him and find their fulfillment and their substance in the word, capital W, made flesh. Or as John's Gospel puts it right at the very beginning, who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is the word of God. And the Scriptures speak of Him. Have you got that? You're still looking puzzled. Don't worry. Again, it might be for various reasons. And yet, and this is the amazing thing, if we think about it, if we think about what the Bible does, then the Scriptures do perfectly exactly what they intended to do. They point us to Jesus. Or as one theologian put it, all Scripture is God-breathed for the ultimate purpose of pointing people to Jesus Christ. All Scripture is God-breathed, God-breathed for the ultimate purpose of pointing people to Jesus Christ. And yet, according to Jesus and what he says to these religious leaders, that ultimate purpose can be sidestepped. According to Jesus, it's also possible to read the Bible and to hold the Bible as sacred, but to understand the Scriptures in such a way that their meaning is distorted, their intent is lost, and their authority is misapplied. That's a big challenge, isn't it? That's what he's saying. Apparently, if we understand what Jesus is saying to these leaders, you can be devoted to the Bible and not be devoted to the Word of God. Further than this, you can be devoted to the God-breathed words of the Bible and actually be opposed to the Word of God. Because that's exactly what these religious leaders are doing in this situation. They're not only harassing the Word of God, but they want to kill the Word of God. And as we get to the end of John's Gospel, we'll realize that they think they've had their way and they've actually put the Word of God to death. And yet the reason for doing so, the premise for doing so, is because of the understanding of the Scriptures. Now that's messed up, isn't it? Think about it. I, I don't switch off me, please. I'm not saying anything complicated. But that's what's happening in this story. See, Scriptures, to go back to what I said a second ago, the Scriptures can, they can do perfectly exactly what they are intended to do and point us to Jesus Christ. But everything... 
Everything depends on how we read the Scriptures. Everything. Which is why many, many years ago, a very wise, very wise guy called C.S. Lewis. Anyone ever heard of C.S. Lewis? He wrote the wonderful Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, as well as uh, many, many good of you. If you've never read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, may I encourage you to read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. It is fantastic. I ended up picking it up the other day for five minutes, and I sat with it for a further two hours. It's just a great book. It's a great book, and I've read it before. But he said many, many years ago in a letter, he said this. He said, it is Christ himself, not the Bible, who is the true word of God. The Bible, read in the right spirit and with the guidance of good teachers, will bring us to him. Let me say that again. It is Christ himself, not the Bible, who is the true word of God. The Bible, read in the right spirit, with the guidance of good teachers, will bring us to him. Now, it might sound like C.S. Lewis is writing something really radical there, and I suppose he's, but he's only paraphrasing what Jesus' words are in John, 5, in John 5.39, that if we're going to read the Bible... And we do so knowing that Jesus is its focus. We start with him. Because if we don't, then it's possible to take the Bible and bend it out of shape and use its authorized voice in an unauthorized way and to use it to form and shape something that does not bear any true resemblance to its point of reference, its point of focus, which is Jesus Christ. Now, of course, all this generates loads of questions. Loads of questions. What am I saying? Well, I've said nothing. I've said nothing. I'm just trying to explore a text. Or, or more to the point, you might be thinking, what is Tristan not saying? Again, I'm not not saying anything. That doesn't make any sense. And you might be wondering, how are we then to understand this relationship between Jesus and the Bible then? Because if we understand that wrongly, it could really go problematic, and it often does. And what does it mean whenever we come to read the text? And more to the point, you might also be wondering, why has Tristan been playing with a bandage while he's been preaching? I have been. You have noticed that. I, I could tell you're puzzled. Well, I was thinking about this week. How do we understand this relationship between Jesus and the Bible? And what does it mean? What does it not mean? And as always, I like an analogy. I like a picture. And I like to use a picture to help us try and grasp us. And I think I've got a picture I think I've got an analogy, an illustration, but like all analogies, all pictures, it has its limits. And if, it, if I'm honest, it might be the worst analogy I've ever done. I'll just let you know that right now. It might be the worst illustration I've ever done. But when I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about Jesus' relationship to the Bible, and what we do with that, and how that means, and what it means, and what it doesn't mean, my mind went to a story by H.G. Wells called The Invisible Man. Anyone heard of that story? It's really hard to put your arm up now, bandage yeah, yeah, it's a great story. Now, to be more precise, I haven't, I've read some HGLs. I've not read The Invisible Man. My mind actually went to the films, for anyone who's ever seen the films, especially the original 1933 black and white classic, The Invisible Man. Or if you're a big Abbott and Costello fan like I am, anyone heard of Abbott and Costello? Just a few of us of my generation. Uh, they did a 1951 comedy classic called Abbott and Costello Meet the Invisible Man. Highly recommended. Read C.S. Lewis, then watch that. That would be fantastic. That's your, that's your weekend homework. And if you've ever seen either of those films, then you'll know that the Invisible Man is always wrapped in bandages. 
He sometimes wears clothes as well, and he sometimes has a pair of dark sunglasses on too. But whilst he's wrapped in bandages, he can be seen. He can be seen. You can see the invisible man while he's wrapped in bandages. But the moment he removes the bandages and the clothes and the sunglasses, then he can't be seen anymore. All you would have of the invisible man if you unwrap the bandages would be a pile of bandages. Now, if you were to come into a room and you saw a pile of bandages just hanging around on the floor, just being there, and you came into a room and you saw those pile of bandages, they would not make any sense to you, would they? They're just a pile of bandages. Without the form of the invisible man inside of the, inside of the bandages, they wouldn't look like anything in particular, would they? Actually, if you really wanted to, if you have this kind of mindset, you could take those bandages and you could wrap them around anything you please and you could make those bandages form the shape of anything you see fit and you could make them look like anything that you want to, if you wanted to do so. But the only read, the only way, the only way these bandages make any real sense The only way they achieve the shape that they were intended for is when they are wrapped around the form of the invisible man. You with me so far? At the same time, if, while you were messing with those bandages, someone came into the room, and they came into the room and they said, oh look, there's the invisible man. They'd be lying, wouldn't they? He's invisible. You've got his bandages. He could be stood over there at the back of the room, or he could be also the invisible woman. Just, just put that out. But, he, you know, he, he, he could be anywhere. He's lying. But the thing is, without the bandages, they too could make the invisible man take whatever form they want. They could say, oh, look, there's the invisible man, and he's six foot three. He's really broad. He's got a size 34 waist, and he's got bulging biceps. I don't know why I pointed there. That's, that's, you know. They could say all of that. They could say whatever it is. They could say he's he's this color or this nationality or he's got this color eyes. But the truth is, without the bandages being wrapped around the actual form of the invisible man, then there's no real basis to what they are saying. It's all made up. Now, I did warn you that this would not be a great analogy. But I would understand the relationship between Jesus, who's revealed in the New Testament, and the scriptures of the Older Testament, being something akin to the invisible man and his bandages. Now sadly in the past, I say in the past, but sadly even in the present, at one extreme, at one extreme, there are those people who have worshipped the bandages. They find a verse, or a set of verses, or a particular narrative, or a particular theme, and then they craft those bandages of the Scriptures into the shape of whatever they see fit. And so they allow their understanding of the bandages to dictate the form instead of actually bringing these God-breathed bandages to the shape of Jesus and allowing the shape of Jesus to determine the meaning of the text. Are you with me? On the opposite extreme, if there's one side that worships the bandages, on the opposite extreme, then there's those other people who just say, well, you know what? We've got Jesus don't need the bandages. Throw them away. Get rid of the text. 
cut it down to size. We don't like this bit. We don't like that bit. Take it all about. And that heresy has been going around since the early church. It's been around for years. And the reason for doing so is that because they've imagined maybe Jesus in their own shape. This is how I think of Jesus, and, and, and I want to keep him that way. And, and maybe the text will challenge that. Or understandably, maybe, and it's still mistaken, but maybe they read John 5 and what Jesus is saying, and they wrongly think that Jesus is saying that you don't need the Scriptures anymore, because now I have come. But that's not what Jesus is saying. And so what they do is they throw away the bandages. The important bandages. And so Jesus gets unplugged from the Jewish story. And he gets unplugged from the narrative of the Old Testament and the hopes and the promises of God. And he gets suddenly plugged into anything else we feel like. So he gets wrapped in Greek ideas or or Greek theology instead of Hebrew ideas and Hebrew theology. Or he gets wrapped in our own political ideologies or instead of being wrapped in the kingdom of God. Or maybe Jesus gets wrapped in our consumer wants instead of the cross of Christ. Or maybe he just gets shaped into our own theological slants. But we need the bandages. You can't get rid of the bandages. They're the bandages God has given us. It's these bandages, the bandages... You know I'm not on about these bandages. You know I'm on about the Scriptures. But it's those Scriptures that God has decided to breathe through, and it's these which need to be shaped around Jesus Christ. You can't chuck them away. And there are some people, I'm saying this maybe in my own defense, but there are some people who've wrongly heard what I've said in the past or wrongly misunderstood things I've written, and they think I think, or I'm saying, chuck the Bible away. That's rubbish. No way are we ever chucking the Scriptures away, ever. Not a single verse, not a single dot, not a single I is getting thrown away. We need the bandages. Now, admittedly, some people might be right in saying, well, We don't actually have a physical Jesus with us. We don't, do we? I mean, we know we have God's spirit. We know he's alive, but he's not here like Beth is here. So some of us might say, well, how do we then wrap these bandages around someone we can't see and we can't touch? But that's actually why we have the writings of the New Testament. I hope you've got that. That's why we have the New Testament. Jesus' disciples, his earliest followers, they wrote down their experiences, their encounters with Christ, so that we could know who Jesus was. And so not only that, but if you get closely into the New Testament text, if you read it, and if you read it with a knowledge of the Old Testament, then you can see that those who are writing about Jesus, they're constantly taking the Old Testament and wrapping it around the form of Jesus Christ. That's what they're always doing. Always doing. Every gospel writer does it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When Paul has to deal with the issues in the Roman church, he's wrapping the Old Testament around Jesus Christ. When John writes that wonderful revelation at the end, that wonderful apocalypse, the final book of the Scriptures, he's wrapping the Old Testament around Jesus Christ. That all this that was spoken before, it's all come to pass in Him, in who He is. Or as Tom Wright puts it, N.T. Wright, the theologian N.T. Wright, he puts it this way, that the Bible is the God-given means through which, we, through which we know who Jesus is. I'd expect more Christians to say amen to that. But maybe some of us want the bandages without the form 
Maybe some of us want the form without the bandages. But the Bible is the God-given means through, we know, through which we know who Jesus is. Take the Bible away, he goes on to say. Diminish it or water it down, and you are free to invent a Jesus just a little bit different from the Jesus who is hidden in the Old Testament and revealed in the New. See, we can't cutely dismiss the Bible. And at the same time, we can't just take the Bible and read it without Jesus being the key to it all. We need the bandages, and we need those bandages wrapped around the form of Jesus Christ. And this is where I'm going to be misunderstood. Please hear me, because I'm going to say something, and you have a knack. People have a knack of misunderstanding it. But in many ways, I'm saying this, in many ways, these words only speak with the intended authority as God breathes words when they're wrapped around the word of God. They only speak with their intended authority as God breathed words when they're wrapped around the word with capital W of God. Now what I've said might not make any sense. That's all right. That's okay. And I can tell you now, it certainly doesn't answer all the questions and stop all the debates. It certainly doesn't. Uh, There are many who take the stance I take, and I've done for many, many years, uh, and throughout history, and they still come up with different conclusions and and there would be disagreements, but it is the right starting point. We start with Christ. And we're always in the Scriptures. And that's why, without apology, we value Scripture. We actively engage with it when we meet together. And I mean actively. I don't mean just sitting and just reading it and thinking that's a nice story. I mean, let's wrestle with it. Let's let the text wrestle with us. If we want to know Jesus... If we want to work out the centrality of Jesus in our lives, then aided by the Spirit of God and in the context of community, we're going to grapple with the Bible. Every church should. If there's a church out there that's not grappling with the Bible, then I've got to ask some serious questions. And they might have different theology. That's fine. But if if they're not grappling with the Bible, then I've got a serious alarm bell going off in my head. And I want you to understand this. Please understand this. We don't worship a book. We worship the one the book speaks about. We don't just seek to read it and recite it and remember it, though that's useful, I'm sure it is useful. But through them, as Jesus as our key, we seek to understand the Scriptures and be formed by God, by the power of His Holy Spirit, into the image-bearing likeness of the Son. It's why we meet. It's why we meet. So we love the Word of God with a capital W. And so we actively engage in the words of God with a little w because they point us to him. Does that make sense? I'm hoping it does, but I know there's still some people running away with the idea Tristan's chucking away scriptures. No, I'm not. Or scriptures, Tristan's questioning their authority. No, I'm not. Or he's questioning their inspiration. No, I'm not. I'm just saying if they don't point us to Jesus, then we're reading them wrong. If I'm going to these thinking that these are what give me life, instead of through these, as John Calvin said, I'm seeing that God is pointing me to Jesus Christ. And trust me, if John Calvin were in this room, me and him would have many disagreements, but we'd agree on this. 
that through these we see God. If we want to know God, then we engage with the text. But it's not the text that's the source. It's God. It's not the bandages, but it's Christ. But I can't have Christ without the bandages. I know. (laughs) And I'll leave it there. But that's what we're doing. Or as Simon Peter says it. As Simon Peter says it. In the chapter much after this, in many verses after this. He says to Jesus in John 6, verse 68, verse 69. Lord, to whom would we go? You alone have the words that give eternal life. We believe them, and we know that you are the only one, holy one of God. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you help us this morning. We pray that you would guide us this morning. We want our focus set on you, Lord Jesus, and only you. Only you. We know and we acknowledge, Lord Jesus, that you are the one who has been sent to us, Lord God. We know that these words, these God-breathed, God-inspired words, Lord, speak authoritatively of you. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that you help us to grapple with these words, to see you, to wrestle with you, to, to know you. Help us, Lord God, to not just take our attention anywhere else. Help us to not just lean to our own understandings, but help us to wrestle with the words that you have given us, your words that give evidence of your Son. And I pray you help us to wrestle with the old and with the new, to help us wrestle with, with the New Testament, how, how, the, how the people who encountered you, Lord, they, they saw what God was saying and they saw what God was doing in, in the person of you. And they wrote that down for us so that we could, we could wrestle with that as well. So I pray you help us, Lord God, to take your text, your words, seriously. Because we take you seriously. I pray you help us, Lord. We, we acknowledge today, Lord God, every time we open up these words, every time we come to spend time with the text, every time we open the Bible, whether that be early in the morning or late at night or even on a lunch break, help us to always come to it with an ear to your spirit and to see what your spirit is helping us and guiding us and showing us to see. And may we see the glory of you as revealed in Christ the Son, Lord God, and as witnessed to by the Spirit and by your text, Lord God. Help us, Lord Jesus, to be more and more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.